up, everybody? How's it going? He hello, hello. If you don't know me, my name is Jordan. Uh, my wife, Kaylee, who is just actually on the screen, we get to be the next gen directors here at Lake Hills Church. Uh, and we, actually, we absolutely love what we get to do. It really is awesome. We get to hang out with students and kids, and we get to watch them grow closer to Jesus. Um, and it's really great. Uh, and we, we love it a lot. Uh, I'm also excited. Sometimes I get to come up here and, and, and also say words. Uh, and so that's a fun part of the job as well. And so today, today is one of those days. Uh, it, it's really interesting. Did you guys, ha we just had a holiday, um, Thanksgiving. How many of you guys enjoyed Thanksgiving? You guys like Thanksgiving people? How many of you, and this is, this is, this is I'm letting you in a little bit on um, what's true about me. I don't like Thanksgiving. I'm not anti-Thanksgiving. It just feels like Christmas practice to me. I'm like, yeah, Christmas is here. I don't know. It feels like a weird pause. Uh, it really, it really does. I feel like turkey is a dry, tasteless meat. I, I, I don't, I don't get it. And it could be that I'm just bad at cooking turkey. Like I, I get that. Um, but it was actually really interesting. This was a really special Thanksgiving for me, uh, for me and Kaylee, because um, recently we we bought a house um, recently, and this was the first time we were able to host Thanksgiving at our own home. Which is very fun. We had uh, we had uh, our family over, and we all cooked all day long, and we got together and we ate, and the meal lasted ten minutes, and it was fantastic. And then we all said what we were thankful for, and then we all took a nap, which is the best way to practice Thanksgiving. But it was really interesting. I remember um, we were able to do that because we got lucky. We were blessed to be able to buy a house. We were able to buy a house a, a little over a year ago. And so we were able to prep for Thanksgiving. But this was actually us, uh, Kaylee and I, on the day we bought our house. Uh, I have a picture. Here we go. There we are. Um, this is us on the day we bought our house. Now I know what you're thinking. Jordan, that, she, that key is gigantic. There's no way that's the real key. You'd be correct. That's not the real key to a home. Um, that is a uh, key that they give to people who buy their first home that you get to take a picture so everybody knows who you bought the home from. So um, that, that's us. It was really, really exciting. There's something that uh, is interesting that happens when you buy a home for the first time that they don't tell you. Uh, something that I wasn't expecting. My entire life, like I grew up in the suburbs uh, of San Antonio, but I moved to the city as fast as I could. I, I, came to, I came to Austin for college. I moved into West Campus, and I never left downtown until we bought the house. I always lived downtown. I always lived between uh, 35 and Mopac, between 183 and UT. That was always where I was. The farthest north I was was 2222. Um, I lived on 30th Street for three or four years in seminary. I loved it. I was a city person. I was like, I'm going to be in the city. I love Austin. I love my, my main mode of transportation were those Lime scooters. You guys know those, those Lime scooters? Yeah, that was my main mode of transportation. One time I took those bad boys up to 19 miles an hour with no helmet on. Um, not to brag, you guys are like, whoa, daredevil up there. Um, but I loved it. But I wasn't expecting what would happen to me when I bought a house. My wife and I, we live in southeast Austin now off William Cannon. And um, one of the things that happens to you when you buy a house or really go through any kind of major life transition is things begin to get reordered in your life. You begin to have new priorities or there are new responsibilities that are placed on your shoulders that weren't there before. I lived in a third-story apartment before I moved downtown. I had never once cared for a yard. Um, and then all of a sudden, I was gifted with a very small 
yard. And I didn't really know what to do about that. I didn't know how sprinkler systems worked. I didn't know any of those kind of things. But all of a sudden, my life had been reordered. Uh, and yet, I didn't really know what to do. So I did what any uh, new home buyer was like, you know what? I, I'm going to do what makes the most sense. And I went to Home Depot. Now, my dad used to take me to Home Depot, and I hated it. I was like, why are we here? It smells like wood chips. There's not a single basketball card in this entire store. I don't know why I'm here, but something happened to me the moment I bought the house. Home Depot is now my favorite store. It really is, guys. I love it. I went there five times last week. That's not a joke. I really did. I was there that much last week. We're working on a project. I went twice a day. It was in. Incredible. I love Home Depot. What happened the first time I walked into Home Depot is I was like, I'm a homeowner now. There are things I need to buy. I need to buy a plow. <laughs> uh, I should probably buy a lawnmower, I, maybe some nails. And I should get one of those guns that goes and helps you screw things in. It shows how much I knew about um, owning a home. So I started walking around, and this thing happened. I, I felt drawn to the garden section. Um, never been a gardener much in my life, but I, I walked out there. And I saw what they had, lawnmowers, plows, rakes, mulch. Mulch was like $2 for an entire bag. It's incredible. Um, and what began to happen is me, in me is that my life had been reordered, but what happened when I was in Home Depot is that that actually became true in myself. I began to actually care about things that I didn't care about before. I began to care about lawn care. Not only that, I wanted to have the best lawn in the entire neighborhood, my whole like six square feet. I wanted it to be the best lawn that there was in the entire neighborhood. It's interesting as you grow up, the things that you, you, you stay competitive but it's no longer about having the best jump shot. It's about having the greenest, cleanest patch of lawn. And I was like, I know how to do it. I've seen movies. I, I, you know, I've, I've heard people talk about lawn stuff. I know what I'll buy. I'll buy one of those things that look like a wheelbarrow, but on the bottom there's a hole that spins and you put fertilizer inside of it and then you walk and it just like flings fertilizer around. Do you guys know what these things are? Yeah, so I was like, that'll be good. I know what, good is, what, is, what would be good for a yard is fertilizer. So I went and I bought one of those. And then I, I picked up a bag of fertilizer and I put it in the bag and I was like, you know what, no, I'm an overachiever. And I grabbed another bag of fertilizer and I put it in. Now, I got home and I was like, babe, guess what? She's like, what? And I was like, we're gonna have the nicest yard. I just spent way too much money on fertilizer. It's gonna be incredible. Everyone's, it's gonna be so green. It's gonna be so like lush that like when you step on it, there's gonna be so much grass. It doesn't even bend and everyone's like, how did you do this? And she's like, okay, Jordan, you do you. So I walked out with my new fertilizer flinger tool and I filled it with a bunch of fertilizer and I turned the knob to where it just threw out as much as it possibly could and I, I slowly walked and made sure every square inch of my yard was covered in fertilizer. But then remember, I'm an overachiever. I got back and I was like, second coat would be good. That's how paint works, right? Like with paint, you paint more than once. So I'm sure fertilizer, you fertilize more than once. So I took the second bag of fertilizer and I dumped it in my little thingy. And then I started moving around slowly, flinging it everywhere, just all over the place. You could see there's more fertilizer on the ground than there is grass at this point. And I walk out and I was like, babe, give it two days. I think that's how grass works. Two days, we'll have the best lawn in here. I can't believe more people don't do this. Now, some of you might be like, Jordan, this seemed like a good idea. 
The rest of you are dads, um, and apparently you guys know this. You can apparently over-fertilize a yard. How many of you guys actually knew that? So did anybody know that? Okay, everyone but me. I, 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 that's, that's what I found. I've, I've told this story a bunch of times, and they're like, no, you can't do this. There's salt in fertilizer. And I'm like, why would you put salt in fertilizer? That literally doesn't make any sense. I didn't know that. Three weeks later, I walked out. You know what had happened to my yard? It was dead. I killed it. All of it. And I was discouraged. I really was. I was so excited about my yard. I had been reordered. My priorities were different now. I wanted to have a good yard. I wanted to have the nicest yard in the neighborhood. And I wanted everyone to look at my house and be like, man, he's got it all together. Um, I bet he has a golden retriever. And the answer is I do. And, and, and all those things. And, and yet I looked out at my yard and it was the saddest yard in the neighborhood because everyone else had at least a little bit of green and mine was completely, completely dead. It was a sad day. It really was. And I did what I only knew what to do. I went back to Home Depot. I did. And something that I have, something happened to me in that Home Depot was really interesting. Like my life had been reordered. I had new priorities that I didn't have before. And then I went to Home Depot the first time and it, it, that became true in my heart. My heart reordered. I began to care about the things that matched my new responsibilities, right? Uh, but then I went out and I tried it and it didn't really work and I got discouraged. And what began to happen is I began to get disordered in myself. I almost like started, I stopped caring about the yard because it was too painful to care about the yard. It was too painful to look out and see just a bunch of dead grass. I'd salted the earth like the Romans had done. And I had begun to be disordered in my heart. I had stopped caring about it because I, and I'd started caring about, you know, things I cared about in the city like Whataburger and, and, and things like that. I didn't need to have a nice yard. And then I went back to Home Depot and something really miraculous happened. That space reordered me again. I went back out to the gardening section. I got new seed. I got mulch and sod. And I was there, and something inside of me brought it back. It, reori it reordered myself. I'm like, I have responsibility now. I want our house to look nice. And for some reason, walking into that space did that inside of me. The second time I walked to Hope Depot, I was reordered once again. I had lost a disorder, and then I came into the space, and it reordered me. It brought me back to meet my responsibilities and have my priorities in the right order in my life. It's really interesting. I think about other areas of my life that have been reordered because of major life change. Like when I got married, my life was reordered, right? When we go through, we go through transitions of any kind, new job, getting, having a kid. I don't have a kid, but I have two golden retrievers, so pretty much the same thing. Um, and that's a joke. Um, your life gets reordered, and, and oftentimes at the beginning of those transitions, you're like on board with it. You're like, I have new responsibilities, I'm gonna, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to crush it. I'm going to give it my all. And yet what happens over time, uh, if you're anything like me, is if I'm not careful, my life will slowly begin to get disordered. I'll begin to prioritize things that I shouldn't be prioritizing. I'll begin to chase after things I shouldn't be chasing. And this happens again and again in all these different areas of life. It's why when we talk about relationships or marriages or dating or whatever it is, when you're with a partner for a long period of time, we say it's important to keep going on dates. The reason why is because when we aren't doing things like that, our life will become disordered. And yet when we go on dates, when we spend intentional time getting to know the person that we love, that we've chosen to spend our life with, what happens in that space is it almost like reorders us. This happened to 
Kaylee and I recently, we had, uh, Kaylee and I do almost everything together. We work together. Um, and we're, we're together all the time. We talk about all, all the time. So we spend a lot of time together. And yet they, they, we, had, we had been kind of in a, uh, just like in a rhythm, you know, that, that happens and um, almost like not roommate mode, but kind of. And so we decided to go on a date. And we went on a date. Um, we went to Salty Sow, which is, I don't know if you guys have been to Salty Sow before. Um, this happened a few weeks ago. It was, it was really fun. Right across the street from Salty Sow is Amy's Ice Cream. So we went to Salty Sow, and then we walked across the street, and we went to Amy's. And we looked in Amy's, there was a photo booth. And we were like, let's go in there. That would be fun. We came out of that photo booth reordered, in love with each other, remembering why we were together. There are these spaces that have this power to reorder us when we get dis. Ordered. Because the thing is, is disorder is normal. As we walk through our life, it's normal when we're chasing after Jesus, but we're also like living our lives and parenting our kids and working and stuff. It's normal if we're not careful for disorder to creep in. Our priorities begin to be kind of a little bit off, right? Um, that's normal. There's no shame in that. That's the norm. Disorder happens as we're living our life. What's important is how we figure out, if we can figure out how to reorder our life. The spaces, the rituals, the actions, that when we do what happens in us is we are reordered, brought back into a line of who we are and who we called to be so that we can live in those spaces. Disorder is normal. It's important to know how to reorder your life. It's really interesting. We're talking about today uh, Jesus, which is a good thing to talk about at church. Um, When Jesus was walking around, the faithful people, the Bible people, were all out of order. They were disordered. They cared about things, uh, their, their cares, their loves, their concerns, their identities, their, their perspective was all off. They cared about being seen. They cared all these things. They were all out of order, out of whack. And Jesus comes and he is showing how to reorder your life, how to line yourself up once again with what God is doing. And there's a story. He gets up in Matthew It's the longest single kind of uh, speech Jesus gives. It's three chapters in the book of Matthew. It's called the the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus is doing in that time is telling the people how to reorder their life, to come back in line with the calling that God has placed on their life. And so he's looking at a group of people whose lives are out of order, whose faith is out of order, whose priorities, whose perspectives, whose concerns and loves are all out of order. And he comes to show them how to reorder their life. And this is what he says, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. He's talking to a group of people whose lives are out of order, and he's coming to show them how to reorder their life to line up with their calling. And he says this, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. We're going to read to verse 13. This is Jesus speaking. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. We might have heard this before. Our father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts and we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. How many of you guys have heard this before? Yeah, this is a pretty famous prayer. I would argue maybe the most famous prayer. It really is. This is the Lord's Prayer. If you notice on the screen, uh, some of you have heard this. There was a little section at the end that was asterisked. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Have you guys heard that little tag at the end? If you open and you read your Bible, you might not see that. The reason why you might not see that and the reason why there's asterisks around it is not all the earliest manuscripts have include that little part of the prayer. But some do. And so what you'll see usually in the Bible is it's written down at the bottom. But that little section has been tagged on and has become part of our tradition as Christians who've been following this God for 2,000 years now. We've all, when we pray that, they pray that. So we join in with an ancient thing. So what Jesus does is he's talking to a bunch of people whose lives are all out of order, right? Their faith is all out of order. They're praying in such a way what they care about is not that they're growing in relationship with God, but what they want is they want to be seen. They want to be seen as holy and, and powerful and, 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 and faithful and all those kind of things. Their lives are out of order. Their priorities are out of order. We're given gift as a, a given prayer as a gift, and yet what they're doing is they're using it to self-aggrandize, to make themselves bigger, to make themselves seem more lovely, they're out of order. And so God's answer, Jesus' answer to how to reorder yourself when you are out of order is to go in a room, a closet even, and pray. Jesus' answer to reorder your life is the prayer closet. It's prayer, intentional prayer. Now, we're not usually surprised, people who've been to church for a long time, when we hear that Jesus' answer to reorder our lives and our, our lives are all out of order, are, we're, are almost like, if I ask any of you guys, prayer would be one of the first reasons, right? We'd be like, oh, prayer, that's how we do that, right? We, we know that. The reason why is because we know prayer is powerful. We know prayer is, is transformative. We know all these things. We've been told all these things our entire life. But there's also a mystery to prayer. Like if I, if I were to ask, okay, how does prayer work? I don't know. Why does prayer work? I mean, who knows? All right? We don't know. Actually, it was really interesting. When Mac first asked me to um, preach, he said, you're going to preach on prayer, how to pray. I was like, great. So what I did was I went to my uh, bookshelf, which is um, in one of our rooms. Um, I'm kind of a reader. I like to read. And I was like, you know what I'll do? I'll just grab some books of smart people who've talked about praying. Because I know praying is important. I do. I pray to my own life. I like praying. But there's a lot of people who are really smart, and they've written a lot of words about prayer. So I just grabbed some books. And these are some books I grabbed. I grabbed these books, and then I grabbed these books. Um, some, I grabbed these books. Um, and then I just, and this, I, I just like not even thinking about it. I'm just pulling books on my shelf. I'm like, oh, this person talks about prayer. Oh, this person talks, I grabbed these books. Um, I grabbed these books, and I grabbed these books. I grabbed these books. A couple more books. It's a lot of books. I didn't even realize it. I just grabbed it. I was like, oh, this person talks about that. Oh, this person talks about that. And I just grabbed it, and I kind of like threw it on the desk right behind it. Oh, this is good. And then I looked back, and this is what I was looking at. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that is a tower. And then I realized inside of this, there is a, this is a Pulitzer Prize winning author. There's a Jewish rabbi. There's a German theologian who helped save Jews in the, in the, in the, in the uh, uh, World War II. There's an old Baptist preacher from the 1800s. There's a literature professor. There's a a poet, there's a New Testament scholar, there's a Presbyterian in here, there's an Anglican in here. And then I realized, like, oh my gosh, 
There are so many words that you can say about prayer. So many words. And this was after I stopped. And I was like, we know prayer is important. We believe it. We know it. Of course we do. This is why we write so many books about it. This is not all the books that there are in prayer. I know you guys are like, that has to be all of them. That stack is a foot tall. It's actually not. There's actually more. But there's so many words to be talked about. How to pray, why to pray, all this kind of stuff. And the interesting thing is, is what I began to realize is not only are there a lot of words that you can say about prayer, why to pray, how to pray. Prayer is something that unites all of us. No matter what tradition we came from, there's something about prayer. We know it reorders us. Like I said, there are all people from all different walks of life, and they're all found in this little stack, this little tiny stack that I found in just my bookshelf. But there's also so many others that I could add to this thing because we know prayer is important. What's really interesting to me is I began to leaf through some of these. Not all these. I did not have enough time to go through all these. Um, some of these, and almost every single one of them pointed and started with the verse we just read. When we talk about how to pray, why to pray, almost all of these start with Jesus' the Lord's Prayer. Why? What Jesus is doing when he tells us the, this, this prayer, this famous prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it, is, as it is in heaven, and on and on and on. The reason what Jesus is doing is Jesus is giving us a framework when we enter into prayer, when we enter into our prayer closet, the place we go to pray, the private place we go to engage with our prayer life. He's giving us a framework for how to build our prayers, how to shape our prayers. And it's really interesting, Tim Keller, he's a, a pastor in New York, he's written a bunch of books. Um, he talks about the Lord's Prayer. One of the things that he says is the Lord's Prayer should stamp itself on our prayers and shape them all the way down. When we pray, our prayers should look like the Lord's Prayer. The framework, the scaffolding we build on, our prayer should look like the Lord's prayer. That's what Jesus is doing. He's teaching people how to reorder their life through prayer by giving people a framework to build off of when they enter into prayer. And when they do that, what he says is that you will be rewarded. In other words, your life will be reordered. You will be returned to who you were called to be, who you were made to be when you do this practice. So what is the framework that Jesus is providing. Let's look at it. Let's look at what the actual framework is that Jesus is providing when he tells this prayer. The first thing Jesus does, the very first thing, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The first step and the first brick that Jesus lays in the framework of prayer is to first adore God. The first move when you enter into prayer is adoration, it's praise, it's thanksgiving. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is adoration. And if you're sitting there and you're like, I want to adore God, but I don't necessarily know how. I don't, I don't want to just like fake compliment, right? Like it's like I want to actually feel it. Like I want to feel it in my heart. I want to feel it in my gut. That when I pray, I want to overflow in thanksgiving. It's really interesting. I was feeling that this last, this last week, and I was looking at this verse, and what Jesus does is actually really brilliant. In the first two lines, he almost gives us a formula of how to grow inside of us. Authentic adoration. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
I'm going to flip the order because I feel like it's more dramatic. Who art in heaven? Let's talk about that first. What happens when we enter into prayer? We need to, before we say words, we need to remind ourselves who we're talking to, who art in heaven. The God who dwells and where that God dwells, things are as they should be. There is life, there is love, there is hope. The Bible tells us that God is the source of all that is good. When you take a bite of good food, you are experiencing a little bit of God. When you fall in love, that love you're experiencing is a little bit of God. When you experience joy and laughter because you've seen someone you love say a funny joke, you are experiencing a little bit of God. God is the one that moves the world, that gives us life and breath, the one that invented mountains and trees and toadstools. That's who we're talking about. When we enter into prayer, that is the God that we're addressing, the one who painted the skies, who gave us the ability to make music. We remember who God is, who art in heaven, and also our Father. This is the next step. What we do is we remember who this God is that we're addressing. And this is the crazy part. We remind ourselves that we have that God's attention. We remember who God is. And then we remind ourselves that that God is paying attention to what we're about to say. If you do this intentionally, what you will find in yourself happens is that my tendency is to rush into prayer, but if I do this first, what happens is it's almost like I hit a brick wall. You can't rush when you realize that the God of the universe is listening to you, our Father. And not just listening, is listening like a loving parent. And what happens when you put those two things together, what will begin to overflow in you is adoration, love thanksgiving, that becomes a natural response to realizing that we get to talk to the God of the universe. And what happens when we do this, when we are intentional about adoring God, remembering who we're talking to, pausing as we enter into prayer, what begins to happen in, on us, in us is our loves get reordered. It reorders our loves. We begin to love the thing that is the most, that is the most lovely. We begin to love that which is worth love more than anything else with all we have. Our love is reordered when we adore first. Next, what he does. I was, this is interesting. The next thing that Jesus does, he says this. Let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. This is the part that we're all, many of us are pretty used to. This is where we ask for things. This is where we ask for things, right? It was interesting, um, what you're about to find out, like a, like a good preacher, I made all my points start with the same letter. Uh, started, so I was trying to think of like, what is a letter A that encapsulates this thing? And my first, my first uh, thought was, you know what would be good? Ask, ask would be good. Uh, and then I realized what Jesus is doing is not just asking. What Jesus is doing is aligning Jesus's desires with the desires of God. What does God want in the world? That is what Jesus is praying for. Jesus is aligning. That's the next step. He aligns his desires with God's desires. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a macro idea. In the world, let your kingdom come. This is what God wants. This is what I want. I'm going to pray for what God wants. I'm going to give myself to what God wants in a macro way. 
Let your kingdom come and your will be done in the entire world. And not just macro, he then aligns with the micro. Give us today our daily bread. Macro, micro, big, small. But both align with the heart of God. God wants God's children to be cared for, to be loved, to know they have a home. And so Jesus prays for that. And he doesn't just say, give me my food. He says, give me our food. In fact, that's actually true throughout the entire prayer. Jesus never says my, me, or I. It's all us. It's all we. He's praying and voicing everyone's concerns before God. So he aligns himself with what God is doing in the world. The, his desires are God's desires for the world. Bring your kingdom into the world and let us have food. When we pray, we pray and align ourselves with what God wants in the world. That means if people are sick, God does not want people to be sick. We pray for them to be better, right? That doesn't mean we don't pray for the little things. It means we don't pray for food. Like I said, it's macro and it's micro. The big things and the little things, we pray for both because God desires health. We align ourselves with what God wants in the world. That's what we pray for. So first we adore, next we align. And when we align, what begins to happen is our concerns are reordered. It reorders our concerns. The thing that we care about changes. Over time, we begin to want what God wants in the world. Our orders, are, our concerns are reordered over time. So first he adores, then he aligns. The next thing he does is admit. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Forgive our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors. Adore, align, admit. The next is a practice of repentance. God, forgive me for the sins that I have committed. Forgive me for the ways in which my life has not aligned with your desires for the world. What happens when we do that, when we're intentional about admitting our sins, asking for forgiveness, uh, is, is two things. First, we receive forgiveness, right? Profound. We then are kept from viewing ourselves as greater than we are. Realizing that we're still figuring this out, just like everyone else. It keeps us from elevating ourselves over the people around us when we are daily in repentance. But what it also does is it keeps us from viewing ourselves lower than we should view ourselves. Because of the forgiveness of God, we are reminded that no matter what, where we are, as we are, who we are, we are loved. We belong and we're forgiven. So it keeps us in this place where our identity is reordered. It reorders our identity. We realize we do not view ourselves too greatly, but we also do not view ourselves too lowly. We realize that we are loved and lovable as we are, and we're still figuring it out. Of course we do. So he adores, he aligns, he admits, which reorders our identity, and then the last thing he does is acknowledges. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. What begins to happen at the very end when we acknowledge, we acknowledge the reality of the situation. What is actually true, despite what we feel, is that God is on the throne, and that we are swimming in God's presence all of the time. It's really interesting. The act of prayer oftentimes is simply the act of waking up to the presence you were already in, we acknowledge that that is true, that God is on the throne even if we don't feel it. In Hebrews chapter two, it talks about that. Jesus ascended to the throne, it says, but we don't see that right now. It's actually one of my favorite verses in the Bible because I'm like, oh yeah, I feel that, that's super true. 
Like, I do not think that. It doesn't feel that way. But reminding ourselves of the reality of the situation, acknowledging that thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This is the case. We are living in a place where God's presence is around us all of the time, whether or not we feel it, and God is on control, doing uh, on the throne, doing what God is doing in the world all of the time. What happens when we acknowledge that at the end, to pause, to remember the reality of the situation, is it then reorders our perspective. We begin to see God everywhere. And the interesting thing is, is if we, as we do this, intentionally cultivating this practice consistently, what begins to happen is our prayer closet, the place we go to experience the love, to experience the presence of God, begins to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until we're walking around experiencing the presence of God all of the time. That's what the Bible says, pray without ceasing. It's being in this mode. Prayer begins and ends with an awareness that we are in the presence of God. And the more and more that we do that, the bigger and bigger and the more and more that we'll experience that in the world. So this is the framework that Jesus gives. This is the framework that Jesus gives. And what Jesus promises is this will reorder who we are. It will change who we are. It will remind us of who we are. It will align us with who we've been called to be, helping us live into our identities as followers of Jesus, as beloved. And we know this because there are books about it, a lot of books about it. We know that this is true. We know that prayer does this. And yet the reality, if I look at my own life, I'm like, I know, but there's just, I'm just not there yet. I've never become fully awake to it. And the fact is, I think a lot of us were there. This idea of getting to a place where we can experience God's presence all the time seems so daunting. It's almost like it's like it's too much. I can read all the books, but it's just a lot. I want to get there, and that's super far away. Reminds me of this parable. I like to call it the parable of the unprepared hiker. It's one of my favorite stories. There's this hiker, and he decides he wants to go on a hike. He likes hiking, but he's not very prepared, which is why he's the unprepared hiker. Is that tracking? Great. Um, He's like, I'm going to hike across the desert. That's what I'm going to do. So he gets his backpack, gets a Nalgene, gets the thing with a tube that comes around, fills with water. He's ready to go. He has a tent. He has his little sticks that you know he's a a hiker. He he has wearing a Patagonia vest. He's got all of it, right? So he walks up to the edge of this desert, and then he realizes he's not prepared. He doesn't actually know how big the desert is. But luckily for him, he sees this guy who's a desert dweller right at the edge of the desert. So he walks up to him, and he's like, hey, man, um, how long is it going to take me to cross this? How long is it going to take me to cross this desert? I've got all the stuff. You can say I'm prepared. I've read all the books. There's a lot of them. I've read every single one. I'm prepared. But how long is it actually going to take me to get there? The desert dweller looks at him and takes a step back, kind of like takes his measure a little bit and doesn't say anything. The unprepared hiker is like, <clears throat> excuse me, um, how long is it going to take me to cross that? The desert dweller looks at him and doesn't say anything. 
And so he's like, okay, there's obviously something going on. So he's like, cross the desert. How long is it going to take? Right? He's like doing everything that he can to communicate to this guy. How long is it going to take for me to get to here to there? And the, the guy is looking at him, looking up and down, and is not saying a word. And after a while, the unprepared hiker gets frustrated and is like, fine, you know, I'm just going to go. And he takes one step. And as soon as he takes a step, the guy goes, three days. He looks back and he's like, what the heck, man? I, I was just talking to you for like a long time. I asked you that. Why did you wait until I was leaving in order to tell me how fast? And the guy stopped and he goes, I had to see how fast you were walking. I had to see you take the first step. This is one of my favorite stories because when we think about prayer, getting to a place of experiencing God's presence in your life. Oftentimes, we'll read all the books, we'll ask all the questions, and they're this tall, and it's a lot of them, and we'll be like, how do I, how, okay, this is, I get it, I get it, I have the framework, but like, how do I, how long is it gonna take me to get there? Like, how long is it gonna take for prayer to actually become a transformative part of my life where my life is reordered every single time I enter into my prayer closet and it walks out into the rest of my life? How long is it gonna take to get there? And we don't know, we don't know, and so what we do is we freeze, and we don't actually do it. We come to sermons and we hear people talk about it. I have over and over and over. I've read books about it. And yet there's something inside of me that's like, the journey is too far. How long is it going to take? So we just stand there. We have to take the first step. Buy a prayer journal. Carve out some time. Is it in the shower? Is it in the car ride? where you can ritualize spending time in prayer consistently, again and again and again, shaping your prayers around the way Jesus has told us, acknowledging who we're talking to, adoring God, aligning yourself with God, admitting where we need God, and then acknowledging the reality of the situation. Take the first step Buy that journal, find that time, do it. And then take the next one, one at a time. And this will happen eventually and our lives will be reordered. Now for some of you, you might be sitting in here and you've never actually taken the very first step of this process, saying yes to Jesus choosing to start out on this journey of reordering your life to align with what God wants for you and what God wants for the world. If you have never done that before, maybe today is the day. I wanna encourage everyone to close their eyes and bow their heads. If you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never taken the first step admitting that we need God, that we believe what God says about us is true, that we're loved, that we belong no matter what. If you wanna take that step to begin that journey, to grow in relationship with, your, with God, to reorder your life, to be aligned with what God wants for you, I encourage you to pray a prayer like this. God, thank you. You are so, so good. king of the universe, our father who knows us and loves us. I believe that that is true about me. 
I choose to follow you. I choose to begin to reorder my life to reflect you. I say yes to you tonight. Now with all eyes closed and all heads bowed, if you prayed that prayer for the first time tonight, if you took that first step, we're gonna mark this with a moment. I'm gonna just where you are quietly with all eyes closed and all heads bowed, just raise your hand. our tradition around here that as you guys lower your hands, we want to put our hands together and say, welcome home.